RadioInfluence.com. The future is now. You've seen Chef Ryan Duffy on Spike TV's Bar Rescue, NBC's Today Show, and opening bars and restaurants all over the world. Now he's sharing his stories, his friends, and some tips of the trade he's learned along the way. Prepare yourself to get Duffified. This is Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy on Radio Influence. Hey, hey, Friday. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Duffified Live today. We, uh, holy shit, what a week. I feel like we, we start like almost all the episodes this way now. It's like every week we've got something new going on, although we had a pretty chill and relaxed period for 11 weeks you know where we all just kind of stayed at home we did our thing you know we worked from home if we had to if we couldn't work you know we kind of bettered ourselves i saw a lot of people losing weight saw a lot of people getting out there walking riding bikes you know doing some pretty cool shit out there creating content for uh, like like social media and stuff like that i saw some really cool things while we were uh, while we were on our little our little quarantine there uh, and I think for me, the biggest part of it, because this thing really like the whole everything that's going on right now with the riots and the protesting and, and everything else really hit me hard this week, like very, very hard. Uh, I, I struggled a lot, you know, I mean, with all the negativity and, uh, you know, the, 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 the riots and the protesting and the, look, the protesting doesn't get me as much as the rioting and the looting and, the, and just the pure hatred and violence. You know, that's the stuff that just kind of wafts through the air. Uh, you know, I, I went, I guess it was uh, two days ago. I was uh, watching the news and like I was watching the actual news. Because if you guys know me, I don't have TV. I have Netflix and stuff, but I don't have like local channels. So I never watched the news. So I ended up watching a yawn. I'm exhausted. Just so everybody knows. Uh, it's been a pretty nutty week with what we have going on with with, with my work as well because we're doing a huge dinner for 500 and then I've got to do a lunch for 400 today. So you guys are going to listen to this and be ready to rock and roll while I'm slaving over a hot smoker grill. So uh, with that being said, I completely and utterly lost my train of thought of what it was that I was talking about. I was talking about everything that's been going on this week and how we went from this like pure, peaceful coexistence because we were all just focusing on the same thing, which was your mask is for me. My mask is for you. You know, like we're, we're helping each other out by wearing the mask. We're staying socially distant of six feet because of the fact that we don't want to get anybody sick. You know, I flew for the first time on Tuesday and it was the first time since March 17th that I flowed, which was pretty weird. Oh, there's the yawn. Oh my God. I'm sorry. You guys are yawning with me as well. God, everybody get your yawns out. Good. Now, uh, I flew for the first time on Tuesday and I'll tell you what, really very pleasant experience. One, not a lot of people in the airport Two, about 40% full on my way from Philadelphia to Boston and about 10% full on my way from Boston to Philadelphia. So on the way back, I had hardly anybody on the plane. There were like four of us on the whole plane, uh, which was kind of nice. You know, it was just kind of very nice. It was a nice, easy flight, a great flight attendant. It all just worked out the way that it should. Uh, 
Um, but while I was up in Boston, I went up to see my buddy, uh, Andrew Mellon. Uh, I went up to see a client while I was up there. And one of the cool things is Andrew Mellon is the corporate executive chef for Todd English and all of his concepts. So uh, had some dinner, got some pizza from Figs in Beacon Hill, uh, which, oh my God, man, I had a portobello pizza that knocked your socks off. It was unbelievable. And I got it without the truffle oil. I hate truffle oil, by the way. Like shitty uh, commodity, just basic truffle oil. Tastes like shit. Not a fan. Um, but I think one of the big things for me uh, was was watching the operation. You know, I mean, I've been in the restaurant for the last couple of weeks, but watching the operation and how other people are doing to go, how other people are dealing with the whole pandemic, because I have still have people that will walk up to the door and yell their number in for us to grab their food and bring it out to them. So, which we're not a huge fan of. You know, I like to make sure you get the food. I don't want anything thrown around or strewn. I just want to kind of have it sent to you nicely. And we focus a lot on presentation when we do uh, sell the product. So when we, we put our to-go stuff together, we focus a lot on it. And that's one of the things that I really liked, like seeing what all these other restaurants are doing. Because I had lunch one afternoon. I had dinner the other night. So I was pretty happy with the way that everything came out. But Andrew over there at Figs, Todd English's place, you're doing a great job, man. I really enjoyed the food. Beet salad was awesome. Uh, what else did I have? I had beet salad, and then we had, I, you know, I had a couple different pizzas, so it was pretty tasty. I liked it. I had fun, and the food's good. Sat in the park for a little bit. Got to feed some squirrels. Go to my Instagram. You can see that little picture. While I ate a lobster roll, I was very happy with the lobster roll. Little salty, really little salty. It was like there's too much Old Bay in there or something, but it was pretty tasty. So. Um, so the big thing that, uh, we're doing this week is we are going to have a conversation, uh, with a gentleman named Rich Rosendale and Rich is, uh, he's a chef. Uh, he's a scientist. He's a businessman. He's an educator. Uh, and I was once, I was first introduced to Rich at the culinary vegetable Institute over there, uh, with the whole crew in Ohio when we went out there for the roots innovate. Uh, it was a really amazing event that was held in Ohio a couple of years ago. And there was a great panel of people. And I was super interested in Rich Rosenthal because of the way that he cooks and the way that he educates and the way that he speaks. Um, he's very, very into what he does. Super, super talented as a chef. And he's got a big brain, man. So everybody do me a favor this week. I want you to get your uh, stuff together, get your headphones in, sit back and relax, put your hands together and welcome my boy. Ready for this? Chef Rich Rosendale. Good morning, Chef. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, Brian. How are you? I'm pretty good, man. I'm pretty good. How are you? Uh, how is your? Uh, how are you dealing with all this weirdness that's going on, man? Uh, you know, actually, I mean, even though it's been really brutal for uh, businesses all across America, I mean, it. The, the I'd say the positive part of it for me has been I've been able to spend a lot of time. Uh, with my family. And we also, from a, from a work standpoint, I feel like it's kind of given us an opportunity to focus on some initiatives that otherwise, you know, when things were moving a hundred miles an hour that we just simply didn't have the time to do it. So we've launched several things um, during this time only because we've kind of had to narrow the focus um, 
so it, you know, I'm dealing with it like everybody else is, but it's been, it's been crazy. It's turned our world upside down. I think I, I, I kind of, I totally agree with you. Cause it, I mean, the whole world that we live in, especially with what you do with what I do, whether it be in the consulting world, whether it be constantly recording shit or, you know, with the classes and everything that you do and the interactive stuff that you do, you're absolutely right. It's like, this has been a, 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 a I, I hate to say it. It's been a really great 10 weeks for me. Right. Yeah, I know. know, Because of of the organization that I've gotten done and getting back into the restaurant after flying 100,000 miles a year, getting back into the restaurant and starting in the basement and working my way back up to the to the line again, you know, to the cash register has been just brilliant for me. I've loved it. And it's the first time I've admitted that openly. Right. Well, and, and, you know. I feel like just because, you know, so many peers and everybody that I talk to, I almost feel kind of bad saying that because, you know, and from our standpoint, too, I mean, don't get me wrong. We've had to uh, furlough some staff and we've had to make some some tough decisions on our operation. But, you know, just like with any of life's adversities, I think you always got to try to say, okay, what is this situation asking of me? And how how can I take something good from it? And and I would say that, um, you know, my wife, I know she works from home. She's it's been driving her crazy, like having the kids home like <laughs> every day. But I'll tell you, man, I've been cooking with them and hanging out with them. We're, you know, me and my little girl, like right before we go to bed, you know, we play uh, a couple of different card games, old maid and all. You know, it's just I, I don't know. I feel like in some strange way, you know, years from now, we will look back on this as a very profound and peculiar time in our life. And there, you know, I think that you can still find some, some good elements that will come of this. Uh, I mean, I I really believe that. I mean, I think it was a really nice kind of grounding for everybody. Uh, Obviously, despite the financial situation and the amount of people that lost their jobs and everything else. But it's like, you know, I'm seeing friends of mine that have lost tremendous amounts of weight that have started new businesses, have started new directions with their business. You know, the positive, the positive part of it that is really starting to come out is is a lot of what I'm starting to see as people walk out of their houses more over the last couple of weeks. So, um, uh, why why don't we do this? Why don't we do this real quick? Why don't you tell us who you are? what you do and how people can get in contact with you. So my name is Rich Rosendell and I am the uh, owner and chef of Rosendell Collective. That's our holding company for several different divisions that, that we do. I'm based here in Northern Virginia uh, in the metro of uh, DC. It's where we operate our, our main headquarters. I'm really pretty easy to get in touch with. Um, you can go on pretty much any social media platform and, uh, look for Rich Rosendell and I'll, I'll reply and that's how a lot of people get in touch with me. I almost kind of see business cards as almost getting to be obsolete. I mean, <laughs> you want to get in touch with anybody these days. It's pretty, pretty easy to do. Have you, have you seen the, uh, the virtual business card now that all it is, is it's like, a, it's almost like a plastic credit card and it's got your QR code on there. So now you can just walk over, you know, you introduce yourself to somebody or whatever. You can hold the card out. You can scan the QR code and it just pulls all your information up and you can save it right there. Um, I but, have seen that. Yeah. And, and actually one of uh, one of our team members actually had brought that to me 
And I was like, look, you got to use up the rest of our business cards first because those things were like five dollars a pop. So. <laughs> <laughs> See, and you're like me, though. But I, I think that a business card like my business cards are, a, a, you know, they're an eighth of an inch thick. You know, I, I've got like a really nice thick. And every single time that I hand somebody a business card, they always stop, look at it and go, wow, what a great card. And it's almost like they're gate. You're getting their, you're grabbing their attention at that moment rather than just handing them a piece of paper. Well, yeah, and uh, as you know, I mean, everything you do, everything that you affiliate yourself with, is kind of part of your your brand DNA. And I mean, if you're going to give somebody a, a a business card, I mean, it should it, there should be continuity with like who you are, how you do things, even the type of yeah. font you select. You know, that stuff all is important. Now, how did you kind of what, where, what brought you to where you are now? And I know that's a super wide, vague question. I mean, I've I've been a fan of yours for a long time, um, you know, just through the culinary world, you know, of of, you know, bits and pieces of you kind of popped into my life over the last eight, eight, eight ten years. Um, you know, and, and I've, I've started to follow you and kind of check out a lot of the stuff that you did. And I've been a big fan of yours. So how did you, what brought you from being a kid into the culinary world and especially to the level at which you operate now? Uh, well, that's a, that's a great question. And thank you as well as, as, uh, kind of being part of the, the journey. I appreciate that. Um, well, you know, I grew up in southwestern Pennsylvania. I really wasn't um, a, a, a great student. Uh, I got into a lot of trouble. My my parents separated when I was very, very early, like, you know, like a lot of kids in America growing up into kind of uh, uh, growing up with my mom and my sister. And I really had no idea what I was going to do as I was getting closer to graduating from high school. And I took a uh, home ec class kind of toward the, the end of my um, high school years. And I started just getting exposed to stuff in the kitchen. I was like, wow, this is, this is really cool. You know, I don't have to be great in academics or maybe I'm just not great in academics, but, uh, this is something that there's a creative outlet for me. My mom took me to several culinary schools. Uh, I did two, three year apprenticeships. I worked at Nemecola Woodlands Resort was where I did my first apprenticeship. And believe it or not, Brian actually started off doing, uh, pastries and baking and later evolved into savory. But um, I I took a what seemed like a longer path, uh, but it actually gave me a much better, stronger grasp of my skills. And what I mean by that is I did two three-year apprenticeships because after I finished my first one, uh, I went down to the Greenbrier and I did another three-year apprenticeship. Uh, and I mean, I'll nice. tell you what, yeah, it, it's, it really has been crazy because I've had so many chapters. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I'll introduce myself a lot of times and I don't even I don't even mention like half the stuff that I've done. I mean, I mean, I mentioned being a certified master chef or doing Boku's door or any of that stuff. I mean, I have always just kind of looked to what's next and evolving what I do because I, I like I like being engaged. I really enjoy the process. I'm not really one about getting to the finish line. I really, what keeps me going every day is building brands and building uh, a business that is exciting and invigorating to be a part of. And I, I don't, I mean, I got, my God, I don't even know how many culinary medals I have, but you know, they're up in my office. I got all kinds of 
plaques and stuff like that. I don't have, I don't hang any of that stuff at, at the restaurant or, uh, at our, at our culinary lab. I, I mean, I got it. It's great, but you know, I I've kind of just continued to look forward as to like what's on the next horizon. Yeah. I mean, I think there's something to be said about all that within the restaurant. I mean, I, I agree with you. The stuff that I have kind of hangs in my, you know, it's in my office. And it's one of those things like I have a trophy that's on my desk right now that I won in. What year is that? 2001. Best use of produce in a salad. But it's one of those things. It's a great looking trophy. And it's one of the things that I keep here, but I don't keep it in the restaurant. You know, I mean, in, in the restaurant is just my fun place and, and my, my outside place. And I don't have to tell everybody what it is that I've done. You know, even most of my jackets, they don't even say chef on them. Right. You know, I mean, it's just I, I, I kind of got out of that whole world and I've done, you know, I mean, I've traveled all over the world. I've been, you know, I remember cooking in, a, in Guam and there was a chef down there with full toque, full neckerchief, every initial that you could possibly imagine hanging <laughs> off the end of his jacket. And and I and I asked him, you know, at one point I said, hey, chef, do you guys have any knives? Now, realize I flew here from Connecticut to Guam from Connecticut, you know. And I was like, hey, chef, do you guys have any knives that we can use? And he goes, oh, I guess celebrity chefs don't have knives. And I said, well, and I finally replied back and said, well, I guess chefs with that many initials don't clean their fucking drains. <laughs> like the kitchen just smelled like shit, you know, yeah, but he had his accolades. So. Yeah, the irony. And, and I always thought about that. You know, well, I mean, it's like I just never got into that world that if somebody asked me, hey, I'll have the conversation, but I don't need to billboard it. Well, yeah. And, and, Maybe that's just me. I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I, I see a lot of value in, um, you know, people putting stuff on their resumes and having all these different accolades. It's great and for your customers that, that will carry some cloud as well. It's just that I think that my motivation, what probably prompts people to maybe think like, well, that's what keeps rich going is getting medals and this and all that. It's, it's really not. I mean, it's the process. It's the process of, yeah building these initiatives that I just get really excited about. And I, you know, we have several different um, facets of our business and building that to me and trying to keep the momentum going. That's what I kind of feed off of. It's not really necessarily just the, the end result, you know, the, the finish line. It, that's not really what keeps me going. I mean, money, even just like with, with money, I mean, I'm not somebody that's motivated by, um, how much money I'm going to make. I mean, I'm, I'm really kind of more sure. building the, the business um, is what's, that's what invigorates me. It's what excites me. So what, what is, what exactly is the collective, like what is the, what is underneath of that umbrella at this point? So we have, we're probably, I'd say uh, really one of the more unique culinary companies uh, that are out there. I mean, I, have really kind of continued to evolve the company. Whenever I first left the Greenbrier, you know, I was the executive chef and director of food and beverage there. And I left and basically the very next day had zero income. You know, I mean, I, I left on my own accord, so I didn't have any kind of uh, revenue coming in. So I literally uh, put the company together. Uh, I had intended on it offering multiple services so the collective was was kind of born, the Rosendale Collective. So 
we started off first doing uh, culinary instruction and cooking classes. And that has in its own right really kind of been, I'd say, the foundation on which we've built a lot of the other things just because we've had some amazing clients. I mean, we've done uh, we've done culinary instruction for uh, Facebook at their headquarters in Menlo Park. We've had the royal family in Dubai, U.S. military, uh, the Venetian, wow. the Palazzo. I mean, we've had some huge brands that um, have hired us for our culinary training. Uh, that has morphed into Rosendale Online, which is an online recipe subscription website. And we now have uh, members that many of which started off by taking our classes and now they sign up and there's lots of great culinary resources that are on there. Uh, and then we that is our I guess I would say kind of our education division. We do still offer consulting. We have even in, in this during this crazy pandemic situation, uh, we still have several clients that we do a lot of menu development and R&D work for. Uh, we operate in the RC Culinary Lab. That's about 10 minutes from my home here in Leesburg, Virginia. We're probably about 15 nice. minutes from Dallas Airport. Uh, it's a beautiful uh, state-of-the-art kitchen. I mean, we have – I mean, it, it's literally like walking into a spaceship. I mean, the stuff that we have in there is just really nice. cool. We got a lot of prototype equipment and, and things of that nature. Um, we also have uh, – I also do a lot of license uh, deals. So we have – Basically, uh, our culinary management component is uh, Rosendale events. We do um, events that are in the Atlanta metro. That's at 200 Peachtree Southern Exchange. That part of our business has kind of come to a little bit of a screeching halt uh, in the last couple of months, obviously, due to the pandemic. Uh, we also just launched a uh, another uh, division that will be in uh, Florida where we have – the residence club, which is an exclusive 48 club uh, residence that we will be doing the restaurant and the food and beverage there opening up in January next year. Um, we have Route 657, which is the restaurant here in Leesburg, Virginia. So we have a lot of stuff going on, but I will tell you that it, going through a pandemic like this, I feel like we've been poised to be able to navigate through this better than a lot of companies only because we don't really have all of our beans in one basket, I guess, if you would use that, the, the old saying, um, yeah. you know, that, that, but you know, it's, there's a lot of layers there to what we do, but, um, you know, it works and we've been able to kind of grow. Well, and I know, I mean, you know, for, which is, which is, I mean, super cool because I think when, when this whole thing went down that, that like, Second week in March, that 14, 15, 16, 17, when they started shutting everything down, I mean, you know, that initial panic kind of takes over. You know, I mean, we're now at the mercy of of the government. We're being told what we have to do, how we have to do it. Um, you know, now they're putting out rules and guidelines for things that you have to have within restaurants. I mean, I have one of my guys in Philly who just spent $70,000 you know, on sanitizing his restaurants and UV lights and the whole nine yards. And then we come to find out that the UV lights are actually burning the the staff's eyes. Wow. Like there's so much. Yeah. The whole staff, everybody who worked on that first night when they ran them and as soon as they turned them on uh, that night, all the whole, the entire staff went to bed 
uh, and all woke up around the same time, three o'clock in the morning, and they all felt like they had sand in their eyes. Wow. It's pretty wild. Terror. Some of the weird stuff that's coming out. Yeah, super weird. So anybody who's putting UV and lights in, be careful when your staff's in the restaurant. But, well, I mean, I think that, go ahead. No, I was just going to say that, you know, I, I do think that restaurants, that this could actually be a, a good thing, believe it or not, for the restaurant industry in the long term, because I, and you know, I know I'm, I probably piss a lot of people off by saying that, but there's a lot of people out there that's like, oh, we just want to get back to business as normal. But to be honest with you, I mean, restaurants are not really great uh, models. I mean, they're, 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 the, the margin of profit and the amount of overhead, I mean, it's, 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 they're not great models. I mean, and I think that this will prompt a lot of people to look at their organization, to look at their restaurant and say, Hey, how are we going to do this differently? I mean, we have, we have like maybe four people right now that are working in our culinary lab, but they do the work that otherwise I probably would have hired, um, twice or three times as many people. But, but, you know, we look at it differently as like, can you pay a more premium wage, hire a higher skilled staff, invest in them, train them and be more productive using equipment and techniques and, and technology to, to do the, the job better? I mean, you can't you can't point to the fact that food cost is expensive, labor cost is expensive and say, therefore, uh, it's really hard for us to operate our restaurant and we need more money. I mean, that's that's really a symptom of right. the problem. The model right. itself needs to change. It needs to evolve. The restaurant industry really needs to disrupt uh, itself. But actually, a pandemic got to it first. Yeah. Well, and I think it's kind of, you know, reading what I'm reading and being involved in a lot of the the online groups and whatnot, listening to staff talk, uh, you know, listening, having conversations with other owners, you know, uh, we're, I, I think we're all, we've all been awoken, you know, really abruptly to the reality of what the restaurant industry is, you know, which is, I, I mean, it's, there's not a lot of profit. You're absolutely right. There's not. I mean, look, my freezer went down the other day. I got to drop another grand into a freezer. That's a grand out of any profit that we would have made this month in the middle of a really weird time. You know, I mean, that is a grand that's been taken out, you know, staff members, you know, with all of that and thinking about, you know, the amount of, un, you know, of, of, of undocumented workers that are within the restaurants, which we all know are out there. You know, I mean, that's how restaurants survive, you know, is with well, a lot of those employees that are out there. And, and the reality is to replace and that. the way that they're being treated. That's kind of where I was going with that. Oh, totally. Totally. Well, and. And, you know, even to kind of point to the the economics of uh, a restaurant, you talk about replacing a cooler. I mean, a lot of people don't realize they kind of look at it from the outside looking in and they're like, oh, well, yeah, you probably do like eight thousand or fifteen thousand, whatever, for uh, service and, you know, just pay for it out of that. It's like, no, the profit, the margin of profit. It's like how many sandwiches do you have to sell to replace that cooler? I mean, it's just. There's a there's a ton of inefficiencies uh, in the restaurant model. And I think this is a good time for people to look at a new opening uh, and and do things a hell of a lot different than what they were doing before. Well, I think that there's and, and from my from my personal experience and from experiences that I'm dealing with with other people, whether it be clients, whether it be friends, you know, colleagues, whatnot, the owners are getting back into it again. The owners are getting back in. 
They're getting behind the bar. They're getting back into the kitchen. They're standing there answering the phone. One of the greatest things to come out of this is the relationship that I've built with my clients over the last over the last 10 weeks. Oh, definitely. The people that are calling up, that are that are answering the phone, who better is going to explain a menu or the features that I'm running for that day than me when I answer the phone? Well, and, you know? yeah, I totally agree with you. And I, I think that, you know, you bring up another good point is in addition to those relationships with uh, your customers is definitely also even with the staff. I mean, being able to spend more totally. time with, with the staff for sure. I've got a 15-year-old kid who, I'm sorry, he just turned 16 last week. You know, for his birthday, his father bought him, bought him, uh, you know, a, a black chef jacket and black pants. You know, because uh, cool. yeah. you know, he started out as my dishwasher and he dressed like shit all the time. He wore <laughs> the same clothes over and over. You know, this is a kid who's got to clean a smoker twice a week. <laughs> um, you know, so take that soot and put it all over your body. But But the pride that he walked into that kitchen with, you know, I just got him a knife the other day so that now he's got his own knife he can put in a kit and we're teaching him. This is a 15, 16 year old kid who's now breaking down my chickens. He's spatchcocking chickens for me. That's amazing. You know, I'm teaching him how to break down spare ribs to turn them into St. Louis and the different cuts that we're getting out of each rib. And, you know, I've got him working on because the cost of food now is so maniacal that now I've got, you know, we've got to get creative because my brisket is eight fifty a pound. Oh, totally, totally. Which I'm not selling brisket. So we're doing other things like, you know, I mean, and here's, here's, you know, some of the fun shit. Like we take our hanging tenders, we completely clean them. We smoke them for an hour and a half and then we, then we confit them. And then I slice them up for sandwiches. That's awesome. You know, it's like, so we're really getting to a point of a super creative process which is uh, which is really pretty fucking cool for my staff to see, to see the process of how to get through this. What are we going to do with the, you know, with the flap on the back of the rib? What are we going to do with the tip up top? What are we doing with that back portion of the spine? How are we breaking this down? And they're seeing really neat stuff starting to happen as opposed to let me buy, you know, pre-peeled garlic in a container and then, you know, and then chop it. Yes, chef, I do buy pre-peeled garlic. Sorry. <laughs> I also buy a pre-peeled shallot, but that's because I used to have the shallots thrown at me at the Four Seasons all day. Because that's not any shallot. That's a Four Seasons shallot. So, well, but yeah. And, and you know, the thing is, I, I think that, you know, you're doing all the things that you need to do to navigate your business through this. this yeah, through this craziness. I think that the one thing that maybe... Uh, in my experience over the years, I think a lot of chefs struggle with is changing. Uh, it's kind of like, look, it's been this way. This is how I was trained. This is, this is the way to do it. But I mean, for us, one of the things that I've always done and what's kind of kept our company growing is I've always been trying to look like the next series of steps, the next five years down the road. I mean, I knew that the classes, we were not going to continue to be traveling around the country forever. So we've been taking that money and it turned basically investing that into an online platform so that we still have that product, but it looks different. So basically people were like, oh my God, you guys aren't doing classes anymore because of the pandemic. It's like, well, yeah, but we, we have all the content is online, you know, sign up and here you go. And I, I think that with restaurants, it's the same way. We are actually in the process right now of taking our lab kitchen and we have two virtual restaurant concepts that are to go only 
that we already were testing out the recipes and the brand. And they're actually, Brian, they're actually seasonal concepts. So one of them would run through the summer and the spring, and the other one is geared more toward uh, the fall and winter. And here's the thing. When you're doing a concept like that out of like a warehouse location and it only exists online through yeah. delivery apps, if it doesn't work in four months down the road, you can scrap it and start over. Sure, you don't have you don't, Yeah, totally. So, I mean, my point is continuing to look at what's coming down the pipeline and really try to be be poised to be able to deal with this kind of stuff, because this pandemic could have been anything. It could have been. Um, it, it could have been other like natural disasters or it could have been an right. economic collapse. It just happened to be in the form of a pandemic that forced everything to come to a screeching halt. And a lot of people aren't told for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I the, the idea that everyone has the same is pretty fucking vague. That the entire world is focusing on the same thing, which in reality is staying safe and, you know, not not passing it on to other people, not getting it from somebody. I mean, there's a lot that has to be said about that. And I think that it's been very humbling. I think that it's been very uh, it's been in, in a roundabout way. It's been super calming. You know, I love the fact that my girls are home all the time now. You know, my oh, girls are home in bed and I'm here as well. Like there's something to be said about that. The same runs within that business. And to see the the different ways that the restaurants themselves are lit are you know and here's that word that we keep hearing but we're constantly pivoting you know i have a friend of mine who who owns she owns three restaurants out here she's busted her ass for multiple years to make them the success that they are and that's a success for her which is they pay the bills within themselves she's not trying to win awards she's not trying to do all the other stuff she just loves serving people but she writes at the end of every day, she writes a synopsis of her day. And it's so odd to see that we're all dealing with the same thing. That one pissed off guest that got a bad to go container, you know, or somebody who had to wait too long or a delivery driver because we're all dealing with secondary companies to bring our product to somebody else at this point. You know, I mean, it's a it's a huge pivot. But to see that we're all doing that just kind of brings it all back in because these are things that we never really talked about before. Oh, totally. You know, as operators, we didn't have these conversations of the of the major struggles that we're dealing with. And now we are. Well, you know, and, we've all got the same fight. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like what exactly what you just mentioned is that this whole situation has forced us. It's it's forced us to basically focus on other things that, you know, before the pandemic, you were traveling and everybody, we're all, we all got all these things going a hundred miles an hour every day. There was no time to maybe just sit down and have a conversation with one of, uh, your, your, uh, growers or producers, or, you know, you, you try to do that and you make every effort to do that, but it's not just the quality time. I mean, I know people are always trying to get me on their calendar and stuff like that. And, it, you know, I was just caught up in the thick of thin things. But one of the things I'm really happy that we're doing right now is we just launched this uh, Meet the Maker initiative. It's a uh, basically a social media campaign that we're doing on uh, Roots Instagram page and the Facebook page. And basically we're highlighting one of the local growers or artisans or producers that sell stuff or produce stuff for Roots, our restaurant. And it's like. You know, it's it's cool because I'm reaching out to like local 
people that make pottery or people that uh, grow our beef or people that grow our sweet potatoes. And I talked to them before, but it wasn't as intimate of a dialogue as it is right now. It's right. like, me, you know, so I like I said, I feel like there will be some good that will come of this. It just may look different than than what we think it will look like. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the fact that we, you know, the, the, one of the biggest things that this has brought to my attention, you know, we place an order and the food shows up, right. You know, I mean, and as a chef who, who travels and, and loves the, the locality, who loves where product comes from, who loves digging in, getting his hands dirty, pulling a potato, picking a walnut, you know, pulling a carrot out of the ground, meeting on, you know, meeting that, the the head of cattle that's going to be on my plate in, in, you know, a 72 hour process or, or whatever works out. That's the stuff that I love. But to see other chefs and restaurants go, well, what am I going to do? Where am I going to get this from? How am I going to handle this? What am I going to do next? And then to really to pay attention, you know, four, three weeks ago, we were, you know, we had slaughtered 85,000 heads of cattle. Two weeks ago was 90. We did 119,000 last week because I'm getting reports and I'm because I need to know what's going to happen in the next coming weeks. Right. Am I going to be able to get my ribs in? Where's that product going to be coming from? Who am I getting it from? But for me, I I think my biggest concern is what's going to happen in the next 12 months. You know, I mean, these farmers that had all this product that now just had to go away, the additional produce that they had planned for all the product. Because if you think about the time frame of what happened, you know, we were walking, we were coming out of the doldrums of winter, especially on the East Coast. I mean, you get it being in Virginia, you right. know, that kind of December to February, March gray period for restaurants is kind of a shit period. Like we're just kind of going through the going through the motions that March, the beginning of spring is the beginning of a new beginning. It's the beginning of growth. It's where it's where product is coming in. All the new stuff is now getting ready to go all that product ended up either going into a bin or going into a freezer. Right. You know, and and so where are we for next year? I mean, and I'll ask you honestly with that question, where do you see for us for next year? Well, I definitely think that this is going to have a ripple effect that we have not even really began to, to digest and, and understand. I mean, there's things that, that have been not getting done that maybe you may not see the repercussions of for, you know, months from now. And I think that, uh, with, with the food that people are cooking in their restaurants, I really think that when you mentioned the word humbling, I think that this is a kind of a a humbling, uh, moment for chefs and owners, because now you really, it's, it's hard to tell the customer what to eat. It's easier to cook what the customer wants. And we've been focusing on comfort food and uh, basically not getting fussy about what, what we do. My, it's, you know, my background is more fine dining and roots is like burgers, hand cut fries and and brisket. But that food I feel like is craveable. I think that's a good thing. But I also think that this is an opportunity to look in your uh, local ecosystem and try to create supply chains locally. And in fact, I think that people are going to see a huge uptick in drivable uh, tourism because I think that people are going to be reluctant to get on a plane and fly somewhere. But I think they'll say, hey, you know what? Let's drive over to 
uh, Gettysburg or let's drive over to check out right. so-and-so's restaurant. You know, it's, it's a couple of hour car ride. That doesn't feel as big of a uh, step as getting on a plane with, with your family. So I think that there'll be real Agreed. opportunities here and there's ways to to leverage, um, you know, that supply chain by looking at more inwardly and locally. Uh, and I think that that helps with the whole, the whole ecosystem. Yeah. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that the, 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 the travel tourism, that local world of it, you know, I mean, I'm a driver, I'm a driver, dude. I'm not going to lie. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm an outer banks guy. You know, I love to fly. I, 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 I enjoy flying. It's a, it's a part of my DNA at this point, but there's something to be said about getting in a car. And I, I taught my girls that years ago. You know, let's go. We drive to the Outer Banks. We take the back roads to get down there. It takes us 10 hours. We know where to stop. We know the farmer's markets on the way. We know the locally owned restaurants. I know where to get soft shells in Matompkin. You know, like we know the route to get down there. Um, and I'm starting to see a lot more of the families, you know, a lot of friends of mine, they're just hopping in their cars. You know, they're taking the trips. They're doing the stuff that we did. I don't know. I'm 48. So I know. I can't, I came from an adventurous father. My father popped us in the car. Let's go to Gettysburg. Let's drive to New Orleans. Let's drive here. Let's drive there. So, you know, I've kind of instilled that into my girls as well, but I, I, I do, I think that, that to be able to go and, and pick blueberries in Jersey, when was the last time you picked blueberries in Jersey? You know, yeah. I remember doing it as a kid. I'm ready to go back and do it again. Well, all that stuff you just said, too, I feel like there's something nostalgic and uh, it, it conjures up comfort and, and memories that I feel like is a place where people kind of want to be right now. And I mean, that sounds a whole hell of a lot more appealing than getting on a plane and flying across the country. I mean, not to say we're not right. still going to fly, but I really think that you're going to see an uptick in local and regional tourism. And again, you know, this is me trying to run all this craziness through a strainer and say, okay, how can we steer our company in the direction that we're still going to be relevant and in business and growing uh, in, in the end of whatever, whenever this thing kind of levels out, you know, we want to be poised for continuing to still grow. And it's it's asking the right questions. I, I really feel like uh, those are a lot of people are going to gravitate toward that. You know, I would take advantage of it if I was a business owner. And I think that, you know, one, we've got a different, you know, with with the business level of what's going on with everything being shut off. You know, I know they're talking about opening up retail again. And and for me, like opening up retail, it doesn't do anything for me. I'm not a walk in the store, buy something kind of guy, you know, so opening up retail doesn't do anything for me. So I can save my money in that world. But right. for me, you know, I've got a budget now. Look, my entire salary was cut off in a matter of four days. My consulting, my appearances, you know, the, 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 the paid gigs that I had to go and show up and do stuff, the live cooking demonstrations, they're all gone. So for me, I had to pivot really fast. You know, I had to pay attention to my bills. I cut off a lot of shit that I didn't need anymore. And I really started to walk, work and talk with my daughters about, hey, guys, look, we're on a budget. We've got to be really aware of what we're doing. You know, I just did it with my daughters today. Stop ordering food. Let's right. start cooking. Right. 
You know, right. I mean, did you really pay $18 from fucking Wawa last night so that you could get some meatballs? Come on. Give me a break. Right. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, totally. you know, when totally. we can make meatballs in the first place and I've already got them in the fridge and they're in sauce in a quart container frozen ready for you to go. Right. Um, you, you know, with, with all of that. But I do. I think that there is that we're going to be doing things that cost less money. You know, I mean, taking a family of four on a trip across the country is an expensive trip. But being able to kind of pull that back in, get your kids in a car. Like, I love showing them the world. I love saying, hey, look out the window. Put your phones down. Put your iPads down for a little while and check it out outside. There's something to be said about that. So, I don't know. I see I see this all as a really good thing. I think that it really brought awareness to a bunch of us. I think that it has pulled us out of this abundant world that we lived in where we can get things in a matter of seconds. And we've got to be more aware of the people that are around us. I'm cool with that every day. Well, and and I feel like uh, – and by the way, too, my kids uh, are going to be professional gamers by the time they're they're done with this whole thing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they're going to be sitting in a stadium of, of 100,000 people <laughs> making a million playing yeah. Yeah, I'm like, Tetris. Keep, I have yeah. no idea. <laughs> it's like keep playing, guys. You're getting good. You're getting good. Um, you're getting but, good. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Become I mean, my agent. But um, I, I do think that um, – those th- those things that kind of conjure up memories. Um, I feel like as uh, people that do restaurants and our business operators, I kind of mentioned our, um, you know, looking into the ghost kitchen and considering two concepts. And one of the concepts we're, we're looking at is uh, Rich's Backyard. And it's kind of a celebration of summertime and the American picnic and, and backyard food. And it's Basically, uh, fried chicken, uh, ribs, crab cakes, potato salad, but, you know, all craveable, delicious stuff. And, and the, the fall and winter concept is uh, souped up. And it's basically just extraordinary international soups from around the world, fresh baked breads. But these are, in my eyes, as a chef that, you know, I competed in Boku store, Culinary Olympics, all mostly fine dining background. But the reality is you can still apply quality to different styles of food, different styles of cuisine. And I feel like comfort and craveable flavor profiles, things that people want to eat, is if if you are going to be in the restaurant business, you just got to be ready for what's coming. I mean, I, I one of the other things right. that I'm looking at right now for Roots is uh, – I don't know if you've seen them, Brian, these uh, – these basically, you scan your phone over uh, over the code. It pulls up the menu. You're at your table. You place your order, yes. and boom, the food comes out to you. I mean, if if restaurant operators aren't looking at all these different uh, technology and things that are out there, and and I'm and I totally I understand it's frustrating to change and stuff like that, but this pandemic is not even just in the restaurant industry, but this has accelerated technology being Absolutely. relevant in our lifestyle. It's going to put brick and more brick and mortars out of business. And, and, you know, I'm not happy about that. That's just a fact. I mean, if you're a retail place, it's natural you, progression. It, it is, it is. So, I mean, prepare yourself for that and anticipate it because you, you can't stop that, that uh, inevitable um, evolution. Okay. I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's what's happening. 
I've gotten to a point that we now have a QR code on the bottom of our receipts. So when you call in your order and I put the order into the into the POS system, I walk we walk your food out, you pop your trunk, we put your we put the food in the trunk, we walk up to your front window that is closed. You can scan the QR code if you have our app and you can just pay for it right there. You didn't even have to open your window up. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, we just hold that receipt right up against the window, and you're good to go. I mean, in, in that aspect of it, plus, you know, the idea of getting people to really open their minds up, and I tell everybody every day, every app that you have out there and what menus you're seeing online are not the updated menu that I'm running right now. So download the app, right. go to my website, and place your order online because that I have, I have every rack of ribs that is in my restaurant. You can see the count for the day. Right. You know, you know what you're getting. You know what I have available. Every feature that I run, I put it on my website first before I even put it online. And were you doing that pre-pandemic? Did you Natural, have- and I love that idea. I mean, right. I always, look, I'm a numbers guy. So as a chef, I'm a numbers guy. You walk into my restaurant right now at, at this exact moment, and I say to my guys, how many burgers do I have and how many ribs do I have? My guys are going to tell you. Because they know they do the counts at the end of each shift. They count each station because I don't sell, look, I don't sell an 80 pound case of ground beef. You know, I sell or a 40 pound case of ground beef. I sell 80 hamburgers. My guys don't care that I have a 40 pound case of ground beef. They want to know how many burgers they have to get through the shift. So we do counts every single day. And I put my counts in the computer every day. And I always have. Right. So for me, that's been a no brainer. But with the new way that we've done it, and in reality, I kind of have to thank my POS company, which is Heartland, because what Heartland did is they came out two weeks after this whole thing started and said, okay, the app is done. Now all you have to do is scan this QR code in the restaurant, and they will automatically have the app to every every restaurant around us that uses this system. So I'm lucky enough where in my neighborhood, I have five other restaurants that use the POS system that I do. So in reality, it's a community app as opposed to just an individual app. So right. you can order a burger from Ripplewood up the street and you can get a rack of ribs from me or you can get a roll of sushi from Jason's Toradasu up the street. So it's like it's really kind of a cool community app, but I still drive everybody to my website. I want you to go to my website. Well, and that's what information is. Yeah. And, you know, and I get a lot of people kind of talking about the about the apps and it's like, oh, man, you know, it's like it's a ripoff. You got to pay so much. But but the reality is that that'll all get changed at some point. You know, I mean, the numbers have got to work for the restaurants and they got to work for the the app providers. But you got to I mean, you got to be where your customers are. And unfortunately, it's kind of like an, un, you know, a necessary evil where you may not want to be in the delivery or like what you're saying as far as like offering the, the curbside. You know, you may not want to do that stuff, but you have to. I mean, if you don't, you're going to be at a competitive disadvantage uh, post pandemic. So that's why I tell everybody because I mean, I, I, I want to see. Uh, all of our peers and, and colleagues out there. I mean, I, I hate to hear, I mean, I just had a friend that closed the restaurant down in Miami and I, you know, I feel heartbroken over it because he's a, a really good friend and, you know, but we push and we tell people, it's like, look, you know, you've got to, you've got to embrace all these things. You know, that's, we were doing sous vide classes for several years and uh, yeah. we still use a big part of sous vide. We use a lot of technology. And I mean, the danger of not, 
keeping up on all of the technology and trends and things that are out there. You don't have to be uh, wishy-washy and take in, in, embrace every single new thing that comes along, but you at least got to be in the know so that you can, dis- you can determine whether or not it's a good fit for, for your company. Otherwise, the guy across the street um, is going to put you out of business. I mean, you just, you just, you got to be in the game. I mean, look, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of the delivery apps. I'll tell you that right off the bat. The percentage that they take, the way that they do it is just it's really almost heartless in, in so many ways. Totally. You can't totally, get yeah. through to the companies. But look, I've got three iPads in my restaurant right this second. I work off of three iPads in any given moment while I'm working because somebody wants, you know, they want great barbecue or they want a great burger, or they want something like that right then, and they're using that app. Now, do I want to move forward with it? If anybody's placing an online order and they're picking it up themselves, I, we very nicely communicate with them when they come in. Hey, you're not going to char- get charged, and I'm not going to get charged if you just go to my website. You're right. here anyway to pick up the food. Like, But we embrace the apps. You know, right. we have to. I mean, like, you know, I, I mean, I rang in $2,900 worth of caviar last week. You know, to me, that's twenty nine hundred dollars of sales that I would not have had because they probably would have used a barbecue guy that is, you know, a little further away that charges more money for what he does. And it's not nearly the quality that we do, but they are people that were thinking about something and I popped up. So they ordered from me, you know, to me, that's like I have to embrace it. I hate it. I hate the percentage that they charge. I want to make the consumer aware of what those percentages are. I want to make the consumer aware that they're paying a much higher rate to do that. But at the same time, I, I really appreciate the fact that they're ordering from me. Right. You know, so we make the drivers as comfortable as possible. We've got an area for them to sit outside. I've got cold water that runs through, um, you know, runs through a bubbler in the front restaurant all the time for drivers, specifically for drivers. Right. Cups laid out for them so they can get it when they walk in. I'm always offering the drivers, you know, hey, do you guys want a soda? If you ever want something, call me before you get here. We take care of the drivers. We feed the drivers. Like we try to make them as much of our business as possible because they're now they've now become in in a roundabout way an employee of ours because they're delivering the food. Right. You know, if if a driver's showing up late to pick up the food, I'm already on the phone after 20 minutes with the guest saying, hey, you guys ordered a hundred dollar platter. Here's the deal. Your driver's going to be here in a minute. Turn your oven up to 350 right now. As soon as you get this, take the fries out, put them on a sheet tray, put them in the oven, put the tray in the oven underneath of it. And you're going to have hot, crispy food in 10 minutes. Like we're really very proactive with the drivers as much as we can be. You know, because they've they're delivering our product. Right. That gets to be pretty scary at times. Well, but you but that, nailed it with the simple fact we have to embrace them. Right. Right. Well, that, and that's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, I, I certainly agree that, I mean, the apps are just, you know, cutting into the bone as far as like, I mean, it's crazy what they charge. But my point is that definitely uh, you've got to be in the fight and looking and scratching and clawing and saying, hey, how can we be? competitive and get visibility, whether it's having the delivery app uh, on your website, your your own proprietary one, or having another partner. It's just that you've definitely got to kind of be uh, aggressive in, in the pursuit of your own rescue uh, if you're a restaurant owner 
And if you're just standing back saying, well, you know what, uh, we've always had customers for the last five years that came in and to assume that they're just going to continue to come back. Um, you know, it's going to be a different world. People have, people have been at home for the last like two months and, you know, life has kind of changed, you know? So, I mean, that's the thing. Are you guys limited with your dining room capacity? I mean, I'm, I'm lucky enough that, I mean, I got rid of everything else that I had. So I had partnerships in other properties. I had ownership in other properties, you know, as a consultant, a lot of times you end up getting involved in, in your good clients business. At least I did. You know, I mean, I had some really good clients that I became a partner for that I was working off of profitability, but those guys, but come January, I backed out of all of that because, you know, I got a new show on Food Network and I was traveling a lot more and these little projects were taking up a tremendous amount of time and financially it just wasn't worth it for me. So I ended up getting rid of a bunch of them, ending contracts, getting rid of buying out things, blah, blah, blah. So I focused solely on this place and I really never was a fan of the dining room. I don't have a liquor license. Right. So do I need you sitting in my dining room? I really don't need you sitting in my dining room. So the to go aspect of it, we grabbed it super fast. You know, I turned all my tables sideways. I put them all up against the walls. We put tape down the middle of them. Uh, We created parking lanes for every single order. So when you walk in, you say, you're, you know, Hey, my name's rich. I'm here to pick up my order. Rich, you're number 77. And you walk over and there's an individual lane with your food in it. Right. You know, we've really embraced that to go part of this, uh, to make it as easy as possible for the guests. So that, because people are still walking up to the front door and they're uncomfortable walking into a restaurant. I don't understand why, because we've always been super clean. Right. You know, We've always been, we're always sanitizing things. We're always wiping it. The cost alone within the restaurants for the sanitation portion of it, gloves that went from $80 a case to 150, you know, sanitizing solution that was $35. That's now 110, you know, I mean, it's just, it's despicable in that way, but we still have to do it. You know, I own a barbecue restaurant that smelled like smoke on a daily basis that now smells like Lysol. Yeah, right. That's crazy. Because I have to, you know, I mean, that and fucking fabuloso on my floor. But uh, I mean, it's just it's the nature of what it is that we've had to do. Um, We grasped it really fast. I will not open the dining room again until probably August or September. Wow. And I'm okay with that because I do have a corner property. So I have, you know, I have eight picnic tables outside that are all six feet apart that I can fit out there that, um, that, that we have people sitting in all the time, you know, nicer days. I'm outside on Saturday afternoons and I'm grilling burgers called my way or the highway. I make a burger every Saturday afternoon. It's a $5 hamburger. And this week was, you know, a really cool grilled cabbage slaw with, uh, with our house cured pastrami that we smoked in house. You know, like we really play around with it. It's not a $5 burger. It's a $13 burger on a regular menu, but we grill them up. We charge five bucks for them. I have fun being outside and I have a lot of people that sit outside during that time, all socially distanced, totally responsible. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I mean, we have fun with it and that's what I've tried to do is really make it more of a fun location that people can feel comfortable coming into because I'm not pretentious about it. It's a fucking barbecue place, man. I play bluegrass all day. (laughs) Well, that sounds, that sounds great though. It sounds delicious. And, and I think that uh, with the menus, a big part of it is um, I, for me, my strategy has been kind of going as somebody that has done a lot of fine dining, you know, I kind of 
redirected whenever we opened up roots and kind of did more casual and craveable food. But I, I, I do think that whenever we talk with people that have full service restaurants that are kind of that we're doing high end, it's not that I think that, oh, my God, you're in you're in trouble. I'm just saying that right. there's got to be some serious conversation about, hey, how do we evolve? And, you know, an example of that might be it's like, look, if you had an eight course tasting menu, maybe you take it down to a five course tasting menu instead of having like six different desserts, you have two different desserts. One's a chocolate and one's a fruit and they change more frequently. It's just looking at the operation and challenging like every aspect of it so that you can still uh, be in business and, and use this as an opportunity to, to make your, your business better, to make you perform better. I mean, this is like right. the, the best time. And you know what? There's never been uh, a better time to do this because your customer will be more understanding than they ever have been when implementing this kind of change than they ever have been before. And I, I think that genuinely people are understanding what's going on. Oh, totally. Genuinely people are saying, Oh, okay. You know I mean? Look, I have people that still call up and say, Hey, you know, can I get, you know, can I order three pounds of brisket? I'm sorry. I can't do that. I explain to them why. And then they just say, okay, cool. Thanks. And hang up the phone. But then I have other people who say, oh, wow, you're doing a flank steak that you've marinated and smoked and then you're grilling it and slicing it and you're putting it together for us in a different way. They're appreciative of that and they get it. Right. They get, hey, due to the price of beef right now, I'm unable to serve brisket because of the yield. OK, that's cool. What do you have instead is the is probably 75 percent of the response when I tell them that. Right. I There's agree. the other people that just hang up the phone. But I, th I agree with you. If you're limiting your eight course to five, if you're limiting your dessert selection from six to two or five to two or whatever it is, your guest is going to understand that. And we're still providing the same great service that we had all along. And, and for the fine dining portion of it, you know, that may not be happening at this exact moment. Because, look, we all understand. We all know that you putting together a meal that you put doesn't travel the same way that my smoked wings do. Right. You right. know, and, and I think that people are going to look, they're looking forward to getting back into that scenario. I know we're hearing a lot of, re I was shutting the streets down people, you know, because they're going to start putting tables in the streets, you know, wow. so they can have that going around. Well, there was a huge study that came out about three weeks after the whole thing started. Oddly enough, the study came in from China where the, where they were talking about the fact that, you know, air conditioning is just circulating the virus throughout the whole restaurant. So it doesn't right. matter if you're socially distanced or not because we're all breathing the same air. Right. So how are we all going to handle that? And, you know, I guess in, in a lucky roundabout way, this happened at the beginning of spring. We're going to be walking into summer. So we have that outdoor capability available to us to more than we ever would have before, especially on the East Coast, where we've seen the massive concentrations of it. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that I, I want, I, I'm looking forward to seeing what a lot of the cities do, what the restaurant groups are going to be doing, what these guys are going to be doing to get these people outside sitting down in a clean, safe environment so they can provide the food that they do really well. Right. Cause the last thing I want to do is get a, a beautifully prepared meal from you that shows up in a, in an aluminum foil container with a plastic lid. Right. It's just not the same. 
Now, are you guys doing anything on your packaging or for any of the food that you're doing to really adapt to that? Have you made massive changes to your menu because it just doesn't travel well? Uh, well, we have already, we've always done, um, a carry out and, and ordering app. And we've done that for like the last three years. I mean, pretty much when we first got open, we started doing it. So we've definitely seen an uptick in, um, how much activity, how much sales is coming through there as opposed to in the restaurant. In fact, um, man, I can't, I don't even think like the first month, if we didn't have that, uh, we would have had a hell of a hard time even just getting, through yeah. those first couple of weeks. I mean, not because people just didn't want to come in and place an order. I mean, they just wanted to order stuff online. Um, did you take advantage of, of any of the, the government assistance that was available with any of that? And that's, uh, and that's yes. look, that's a personal business question, but uh, you know, no, I don't mind. No, I, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, uh, we basically, we filed for one for Rosendale collective. We also did one for roots and, uh, I know in Atlanta, uh, the entity there is also applying for one. So it's been, we, I also have been applying for, uh, grants, you know, anything, anything I can. And the reality is, um, I, you know, we are still small business. Uh, we have different divisions of what we do, but I mean, I, I hear, I've heard a lot of people kind of like reluctant about like, oh, well, it's been kind of difficult to do and navigate. And it, it totally has. Been. I mean, it's been a pain in the ass. But I have I mean, I owe that to our team and all of our stakeholders, anybody that has an interest in what we do, even the people that we buy from, like they need us to stay in business and get right. through this. So, exactly. uh, you know, we got to do whatever we got to do to get all those things approved approved. And, uh, so we absolutely, I mean, I've, I've signed up for every single possible thing that, uh, I've seen that we were eligible for. Um, cause I feel like we, it's my responsibility. Sure. All right. So totally separate world outside of all of this. I mean, as somebody who's as innovative as you are with the food that you do, the techniques in which you use, which we never really even talked about. Oddly enough, this, you know, the conversation that you and I have has been all about what we're doing in the pivot stage and what's happening. But one of the main reasons why I wanted to talk to you, we don't have a lot of time left, but one of the main reasons I wanted to talk to you is to find out kind of what your thought is on the innovative ways that we're doing food at this point and really where we're moving to. Because anybody who knows anything about Rich is, is that he's one of the most innovative chefs. The techniques that he uses, the equipment that he uses, the whole nine yards. So, so what are you seeing that's going to be moving forward in the next couple of years within, within your style of food or within the style of food that people are really looking for? Right. Well, um, I definitely think safety is going to be uh, scrutinized and have a higher expectation um, than ever before. I mean, now I, I believe you can go on to like, I think it's like Yelp now that has like your health department, uh, health uh, score, uh, which was not even a never people really didn't pay much attention to it, but they are going to be paying more attention to that, to it now. Um, and I think that equipment offers a huge opportunity to be able to operate m more safely, uh, and then also more consistently. And I'll give you a perfect example. Like one of our 
one of the tools that we probably use more than anything else, surprisingly, in our kitchen is actually our blast chiller. We have a Irinox blast chiller that uh, so much stuff goes in there. And I got to tell you, like the years of working at the Greenbrier and not having a blast freezer blast chiller was like was crazy. It makes me kind of think like, man, how the hell do we get stuff done? Um, so quickly. And a lot of people are like, well, I don't have a blast chiller. What do you need one for? So we use it a lot to be able to really get better yield on things. Uh, we, we, we can ensure that product is getting cooled faster. And by doing that, we have a longer shelf life uh, on our product. One of the cool things with the uh, blast chiller that we have, we can actually, I can sear uh, some say ribeyes or some some uh roast in the oven and get a good caramelization on them and then we bring those over and put them in the blast chiller and we actually have a low temperature cooking setting on that and it'll basically cook the meat until medium rare whatever temperature we want and then when it gets to that it then takes it into the chill mode i come in in the morning the meat's perfectly cooked it's chilled i get tremendous yield on it um so i definitely i i think that it's even before the pandemic, people were having a hell of a time finding staff. They, they kitchens everywhere were just struggling with staff. So I see kitchens um, in the future having maybe less people, but more highly skilled, more premium compensation, and right. leaning heavily on equipment. Uh, I think that is going to be a huge thing. Everybody's freaking out thinking like all oh, robots are going to take over. I mean, ro- robots will be a factor, but there's something different in cooking that you really can't say about very many other professions. And that is, is that from way back it, primitive times, people have this emotion that's connected with food and, and seeing some uh, meat come out of the smoker or tossing some vegetables on the grill. There is something that is just inherently uh, romantic about that, that I just don't see that human component going away completely. It'll change, but I don't see, I don't see it going away. So definitely restaurants are going to go through a huge evolution. Um, I don't, you know, I, I, I just don't see like robots, uh, in the near future, like replacing people cooking everywhere. You know what I mean? Well, but they, it changes, you know, they, right. And they keep showing this kitchen of the future, you know, and it, it's, they're really going again, you know, with, you know, save labor dollars and consistency across the board with everything that you're going to do. And, you know, I mean, but what they're showing is, you know, the robot pulling the fryer up, you know, and shaking that or dumping the fries into that container. There still needs to be a human component to it. But you're never going to have, you know, I don't see Roots as banging out with, you know, six robots on the line, sautéing up some ramps. Right. You know, it's just right. not going to happen that way. Because we still have to have that component there, that person who puts the salt in at the proper time. The person who seasons and sears and does everything, you know, follows that technique the way that it should be because that's a human component of that. And I don't know, if I'm walking through the mall Maybe I understand it, but if I'm going to sit down and have a dinner, it's not going to be replaced. My The employees are not going to be replaced by robots. They might be replaced by tablets. It might be replaced by me holding my phone over a QR code on the table, like you were talking about, where I'm placing my order through that way. But I think that back of house component still it has to be there. 
It has to be the same. Yeah, I mean, don't- because you have to pivot in the middle of a shift. That's the way that it works. It's the nature of what we do. Totally. Yeah. I mean, there'll definitely be elements of that that'll be absorbed uh, into technology, but not 100 percent. I mean, I, I think that that's and, and I also think from the way people eat, uh, I definitely see um, kind of refocusing and realigning um, and, and reestablishing stronger supply chains locally. I mean, we, we were even talking the other day about like, look, do we want to, do we want to partner with, or maybe even invest in our own farm around here? And so we don't have the exposure of the supply chain issues and also even your customer. I mean, it's more relevant now. I think it's going to be more relevant to your guests as far as like, Hey, where, where are you getting this from? Where is this meat coming from? Where are these, is this, are these vegetables safe? Um, so, uh, a bit, I still think that's going to be a huge factor, a big shift. Uh, and also plant-based is going to continue to be on the rise. Uh, I mean, for sure. And actually we, I tell a lot of people this, that, um, our clients that we work with where they're, they're like, if I say plant-based to them, they're like, Oh, we're not, we don't want to go vegetarian. It's like, no, no, no. So plant-based is really kind of more of the marketing buzzword, not really vegetarian because, a plant-based uh, meal is something that actually people that are meat eaters may want to eat more vegetables or more plants in their diet. But when you say right. vegetarian, that's actually kind of, that's a different diet. I, but I, I'm just saying that I think that you will still see uh, even more momentum with uh, just plant-based eating where, and, and their customers ironically are not uh, vegetarians. They're actually going after more uh, meat eaters to just maybe lessen the amount of meat consumption uh, that they eat over the course of a week. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think that this is a, and again, this couldn't, well, this happened at a, at kind of a, a pretty prime time for all of that. You know, I mean, we're looking, I mean, what did we hear a couple of weeks ago that Wendy's was not going to be able to serve burgers if this kept up the way that it was going, yeah, right. you know, that, there was a lot. And when he's like, hold on, wait a second, everybody slow down. Yes, we're going to be fine. Like there's so much going out there, but I have, I've seen a lot of people. Uh, I'm seeing a lot more people posting about the meals that they're cooking for themselves that are using a smaller portion of meat and adding more vegetables onto the plate. You know, they're really going more into that healthy aspect of it as opposed to slopping down a 32 ounce ribeye on the grill and then putting it next to French fries. We still see that, but I'm not seeing it as much as I always have. So, and hey, here, so here we go, chef. I got a quick question for you. Are you searing your steaks before you sous vide them or are you popping them in raw? So I typically, when, when I can, I try to mark them over a, a, a grill. I like to try to do like wood flavored grill. If I'm in the house, I, right. I, I will sear them, but I always try to, I do try to pre-mark them quickly just because I feel like I get, uh, more of that flavor, especially from the wood or the flame, just some of that, that, uh, little drips of fat. Yeah. It just, I feel like I get better flavor. And here's my other one. I was talking to a buddy of mine the other day and I was telling him that you were coming on and his, and I'm going to, I'm going to repeat verbatim. <laughs> How the fuck does he do his eggs? It's literally the question that we got. How does he do his eggs? Oh, for in the heart, in the, in the sous vide. Oh, um, you know, actually I do them higher temperatures, um, for a shorter amount of time, because 
I got to tell you, and I, I can send you a, a time and temperature form, but for years, and this, this is how I've even kind of evolved as a chef. I used to be able, I used to cook them at a low temperature, like 62, uh, for like 55 minutes. And I found that I like that, but a lot of my guests, they, you know, you'd put in front of them and they kind of had this like opaque kind of little orb and it was, it was right. a great dish, but it, it just, it wasn't as appealing as something that was a little more coagulated, a little firmer, almost more reminiscent of like a poached egg. And uh, so I started going right. higher temperatures for a shorter amount of times, more in your like, po- like 73 uh, degrees, but I, I'll send you a time and temperature that is uh, the, the way to go. But high, higher temp, shorter time is the way to go. Sous vide. It's so funny to listen to chefs talk, how we, how we, we all have have had had a couple of those dishes that we've really had to adapt. We love the process of it. We love putting the dish together, but the guest just kind of doesn't get it sometimes. So we have to make that at you know we have to make that dish change. It's like you're saying you love it as a smaller you know as a lower temp with the egg, but the guest just didn't find it as appealing. I do it all the time. Where I'm like ah this is the fucking greatest, and I'm like you know what they're just not going to get it. Well you know what they're not going to get. It. Yeah. And you know what, Dale? I think that all of us throughout our culinary careers have kind of evolved. And earlier on, you know, maybe I was really excited about going and sitting down and getting a (laughs) tasting menu or whatever. But now I get really excited uh, about maybe a uh, going and getting like a coal fired pizza or I mean, just things that are just delicious. And and ask yourself that before you write a menu. Ask yourself, like, just that one question, what's delicious? What is craveable? Like, what do we want to eat? Right. And as younger culinarians, whenever I, when I was writing menus in the tavern room at the Greenbrier, I, I didn't always ask that. It was kind of more about what I wanted to cook. And here, guests, eat right. this. And the plate. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the plate. Right, right. You know, I mean, how many times have I have we written a menu where we've actually drawn out the presentation of the plate. And I remember getting back to, and I, I, you know, a couple of years ago I was doing an event or I was doing a, uh, I was developing a menu with a chef and he was spending the whole time designing the, the plates. And I finally said to him, chef, but how's it going to taste? Right. We know how it's going to look, but how's it going to taste? Let's talk about the method. You know, I, I have a saying that I've said for years, that's the art of the preparation creates the experience. You know, it's that technique that we still have to follow. It's the way that we season, the way that we put the ingredients together. Then once we have that flavor profile, how can we put that dish together on the plate? Um, And and I see it a lot with with a lot of younger chefs that we, you know, I remember doing it 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I remember putting plate, you know, I remember putting menus together based on verbiage and presentation more than I did on the actual ingredients. And it was that moment when I was like, what the fuck? What am I doing? I'm a chef here. Slow down, Brad. Bring it back yeah. to basics again. And that's where my food changed. My food changed dramatically at that point. Because is it delicious? Great way to put it, man. Right. Yeah. Well, and, and I think also, too, is also acknowledging that we are always still learning. And you can learn something from anybody. I mean, because we're all kind of experts in food. You know, we know what we love, what's what's delicious. And I just try to keep my ears open and and uh, I try to taste as many different things. And and, you know, um, we you know, food food's a, 
a language that everybody speaks. I go to a different country and I'm in India and I'm cooking street food with a vendor there. I mean, I learned something, you know, and you know, that's universal language. Yeah. All right, chef. I think we're going to end there. I appreciate your time, man. I really do. My pleasure, Brian. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Anytime. Cheers, brother. Take care of yourself. Hey, Rich, why don't you do us one more thing before you roll? Let us know who you are and how we can get in contact with you. So this is Chef Rich Rosendale, and I'm the owner and chef of Rosendale Collective. You can reach me on any of my social media platforms uh, at Rich Rosendale. Thank you very much. Cheers, brother. Thanks for your time. All right. Be safe. Thanks. You too. Bye-bye. Ladies and gentlemen, Rich Rosendale right there, the man, the myth, the legend. Uh, You know, I I met, I actually uh, heard him speak at the Roots Innovative uh, or Innovate in Ohio. Oddly enough, in Ohio, we were at um, the Culinary Vegetable Institute out there. uh, And I remember, and I just remember being like I was on the edge of my seat listening to him speak about food and technology and the way that it all came together. And it was such a, an inspiration for me that I started to follow him. And, and, and I was uh, honestly, I'm not going to lie. I was kind of super, I've done a lot of things in my life and I was really proud because I was on that stage before he was. You know, I was sitting up there on a panel with with uh, with a couple of other people talking about the industry and what it was that we were doing and food and all of that. And then the next thing you know, Rich Rosendale is up there and it kind of put the severity of that event or the importance of that event to me onto a different level. Because Rich is a very knowledgeable dude. He knows what he's talking about. He knows the technology of food. He knows the business of food. And it's really a great thing to be able to watch. So if you get a chance, check out some of the classes that he puts together. They're super informative. They're super high energy. Um, He does a really, really nice job of getting the point across and not in a condescending way, but in a very informative, educational way. So everybody do me a favor and check out Chef Rich Rosendale. Uh, pretty awesome individual, and I appreciate him being on the show. So that's our show for the week. I want to thank you guys for hanging out with Duffified Live. Y'all know the deal. Go over there and give us some reviews, man. Tell us what you think. Do I suck at what I do? Then tell me I suck at what I do so I can make an adjustment. All right? If not, check out the boys from RadioInfluence.com. You got an idea for a podcast, they're the men to talk to. Trust me. I've been doing 130-plus episodes with these guys, and every week it just gets better and better. And I appreciate them and their professionalism as well as their friendship. Check out Maggie Gagliardi. That's Mags Art, M-A-G-Z-A-R-T on Instagram for all of her stuff that she does. She puts together all our promo pieces. Michelle out there at Techno Solution. She does all my websites. She puts everything together. I love her. Boys and girls, thanks so much for hanging out with us. Do me a really big favor. Wash your goddamn hands and go and be nice to somebody. Didn't get duffified enough? Follow Chef Brian Duffy on Facebook and on Twitter at Chef B-R-I-D-U-F-F. Look for the blue verified checkmark to get exclusive content and to see what's coming up on next week's show. This has been Duffified Live with Chef Brian Duffy on Radio Influence. Radio Influence. 
This is an MMA report with Jason Floyd and Daniel Galvan. Quick fix on Radio Influence. My number one fight is clear, and and there's not even a a second fight that comes even close to my anticipation. My number one fight is Aljamain Sterling versus Corey Sanhagen. And and as I'm looking, I've got the you know the stat sheet in terms of both these guys right in front of me, Daniel. And and I saw this uh, a couple days ago, and it blew my mind. You think of Corey Sanhagen, you think of this taller bantamweight. He actually has a one-inch reach disadvantage in this fight. That's amazing <laughs> because Sanhagen is so big for 135 pounds. You're, I mean, it, it's uh, it's crazy. His his reach advantage is, is uh, that's nuts. You know, and he and he's five foot eleven by the way, compared to Aljamain Sterling, the Funk Master is five foot seven. So you know, the reach is been something that Aljamain has used to have so much success, especially if you watch his fight against Jimmy Rivera. J- poor Jimmy, man, he could not get inside. It was just a rough, rough fight for him, and it was Aljamain's combination of his reach and his like hand speed dude this dude is so fast in addition to just his normal like straight punches he can rock you like a back elbow and in a blink of an eye it's unbelievable or he'll do a strike and as he's bouncing back boom a spinning back strike and so that speaks to his speed but also his reach and uh when you think of Sanhagen you are right Jason you think of that big time frame that allows him to have a lot of success as he does his you know his dominant cruise impersonation uh, Dominic Cruz, you know, one of his favorite fighters, and he fights like him in terms of always switching stances, always fainting, always doing something. This fight is awesome. Both these guys could fight for a bantamweight title tomorrow, and I have gone back and forth on who I think is going to win this fight. But you're right, unequivocally, this is the best fight we we've gotten, and it's probably. It's probably the second best fight the UFC's put on during the pandemic, if I had a guess, behind uh, Gaethje and Ferguson. I don't know if I'm missing an obvious one. The MMA Report with Jason Floyd and Daniel Galvan can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts, and RadioInfluence.com.